Hi, I'm John Byram, and this is Simply Monroe. Today, we are in Tellico Plains, Tennessee, to pay homage to a man who stands tall in the annals of this part of Appalachia, and to visit the museum that shares his name. Charles Hall was born here in Tellico Plains in 1924 to parents who were some of the first non-native settlers to this area. Charles served as mayor of Teleco Plains for 31 years. He was the driving force behind the completion of the Cherahala Skyway, which connects eastern Tennessee to western North Carolina, and was instrumental in the completion of Teleco Lake, which resulted in the creation of thousands of jobs in the Monroe County area. To say Charles Hall left his mark would be an understatement. The Charles Hall Museum consists of two buildings built to display his over 10,000 artifacts, historical pictures, and documents, all of which relate to the Teleco Plains and surrounding area. Today, we are honored to have Pam Hall Matthews, daughter of Charles and Billy, here to tell us more about this remarkable man and to show us through the legacy he left for all of us to learn from and enjoy. Pam, thank you so much for spending time with us today here at Simply Monroe. Oh, I'm so glad that y'all are here and that you wanted to feature our awesome museum. Well, that's what we're here for. We want to see this museum, so why don't you show us the way? I love to. Let's go. Well, I'd like to start with our Indian artifacts. As you know, uh, Teleco is a great Native American land, and we have lots of artifacts that came from this area, from private land, and from the Stokely's land. And this collection was Percy Swainson's downtown Teleco Plains, the drugstore, and many of you and many of the Monroe County people will probably remember finding relics on their land and coming in and giving it to Percy and he'd give them a Coke or a quarter or whatever. And um, so there's, everything is represented here. We have other Indian artifacts we'll look at in a minute, but if you look at the rich selection, there's the war weapons, you know, through here that were also could be used as tools. There's the bowl, bowls that was used for cooking. Here's a, a wonderful historic um, pipe that was used in ceremonies. You know, we have rolling pins that were used and these were the beads anywhere from the beads that the Native Americans and would have done with bone and stone and also the trade beads when the traders came in the uh, late 1700s. Now, if I'm not mistaken, most of this is of Cherokee heritage, is that correct? Well, it's, a lot of it is, but we've had archeologists in here and, and they're actually coming back and we're gonna be putting more information with all our Indian relics. Many are from the Mississippian and Woodland period uh -huh. that predates uh, the Cherokee. The Cherokee were the last folks here, the last Native Americans here, but uh, many comes from other, in fact, uh, huge mounds were found in 19 and 15, and uh, Smithsonian sent people down uh, to actually um, look at those mounds and get relics out, out of those um, mounds, and that was on private property. If you'll um, notice over here, we have a grinding stone that came from um, the Mocking Crow Farm that's just a few miles from the museum. And then we have some other, other relics, an assortment of beads, and then over kind of on the extreme um, 
side over here, there is a few that are from uh, the Western United States. This is uh, Daddy's Hands with a hoe that was found not far from the museum on private land. And um, where they would take and dig the land like that. And then there's also, you know, the celts and, and a variety of beads and airheads and some game balls and game stones. And this is remarkable. The, the amount of detail mm -hmm. on these arrowheads is, is remarkable. Yes, when we have um, the archaeologists from the Cherokee National Forest and also from Western North Carolina, um, we've been very blessed to uh, cultivate relationships with them. Here we, we have a, a, some information when people come in that they can see. One of the earliest maps, well, the earliest we know of in this area, actually says Great Teleco, G-R, Telequa, T-E-L-L-I-Q-U-O on it. And um, that's also the map they came. We were the center of two routes. We were the Unicoi Turnpike that we know of now that is marked. But it was also the Wachese Trail, the over here trading path. And it came through Teleco on to what we know now as Von Orenchoda. And then from the south, we had the Warriors Path that came through Teleco. And those two paths intersected here. And we were a very uh, powerful Cherokee nation. 1730, Chief Matoy was here. Gradually, by 1750, the capital moved to uh, Choda, but Teleco uh, remained a very important trading and over the mountains in Coca Creek through Teleco was the path from the traders in Charleston and Savannah, Georgia over to the Tennessee River, the Little Tennessee River and the Tennessee River and that's how people from Knoxville uh, accessed the Charleston and the Savannah markets. This is an original map in 1934 of Monroe County. Now what's cool about this map when we're talking about our great Cherokee history is that as you can see it has these where they kind of look like teepees. Of course the Cherokee here did not live in teepees. Um, but those are the sites. You know here's Teleco Plains, Unicoi, Coca Creek. So there's all kinds of information from the early roads to the um, schools. And, and this is the original map. Now, one thing I wanna say that, you know, is very sad for us in this area. And when Monroe County was formed and our ancestors came, of course they were hardy people, uh, and that was in 1819, but it was a result of a treaty and it pushed our Cherokees out and they to the southeast corner, uh, more of what we know as Bradley and Hamilton County. But there was a section here, which we call the Indian Boundary, that they were allowed to stay. And that would be what we know today as Coca Creek and our Indian Boundary Lake actually sets on that boundary. So the Cherokee were allowed to stay there until the tragic removal of 1838 when the Indians were removed, uh, the Cherokee and also the um, Creek Indians. That was the Trail of Tears. Correct? And that was the Trail of Tears. And so they came, they rounded them up in North Carolina. Of course, in these plains, our Cherokee were gone except for the two, a few who had decided to leave, but they got reservations. The Ryder Reservations, Phillips Reservation became the town of Teleco. 
uh, but they didn't stay long. They sold their land. They were, they were married to uh, Cherokee women, which you were able to do. You could become a United States and get 640 acres, which they did. But then they soon left. So by the Trail of Tears in our Plains area, uh, the Cherokee were gone, and there was we could only find four families that were in Coca Creek. But they rounded up over 3,000 in North Carolina, and they marched them through Teleco Plains and on to the uh, Hiawassee River in Charleston, Tennessee, which was called Fort Cass. So. Um, we did have uh, all three Cherokee bands and had a special um, memorial in our garden this year and a program for Great Teleco just recognizing the significance of the Cherokee and the Katua band came and they walked uh, the Trail of Tears. I'm going to talk about the guns and I think um, you guys, Johnny and Mike, certainly remember my dad and, and Johnny remembers his gun collection. And we had a safe in the house and he would collect guns and also his, who the ranger here, Cap Price, would bring his guns. And then, you know, I graduated in 71, went to UT, married kids, all that, but he continued to collect guns. And we weren't real sure what he would ever do with them. We really had never heard about a museum to just a couple of years before he built it. And I think he kind of had always dreamed I have a special place for his gun, but he wasn't real sure where he would put them. And so he built a museum. And so one of the things I want you to see is very significant is this is a matchlock. So this was developed, you know, more 1440. And that gun is probably about a 1500 gun. And then we have all the flintlocks. And these would have been the guns that the Cherokee were very interested in, in with the traders. And they would trade all their deer skins and, um, and other kinds of skins for guns. It was one of the main trading areas. So we have a rich history of different 1800s. This one was 1776 used in the Revolutionary War. We have guns from all the wars. Uh, Civil War, Union and Confederate, uh, the Revolutionary War, uh, the Korean War, World War I, World War II, Vietnam. Uh, so as you can see, all this rich history of guns. This 50 caliber Browning, last summer a 98-year-old um, veteran that was a fighter pilot in World War II over Germany, I've actually videoed him. I was here and he just was overwhelmed. He said this gun was on all four corners of his plane and he explained exactly how it was used uh, on his flight over Germany. And of course, this is the 50 caliber uh, sniper rifle. And I, I think, Johnny, you said you had... I've actually fired one of these right here. Uh -huh. And uh, I want to take these home with me. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, I have actually fired one of these uh, many years ago, uh, and it, it is an experience. Okay. Now, that brings something to mind. I always like to be sure and tell people. You know, when Dad built the museum, he put it in a foundation for the benefit of the town. It is not family-owned. I cannot take one thing out of here. It's inventory. The family does not own it. I have no more power than the rest of the board of directors. Of course, I have high interest in it, and I live and breathe it. Uh, but but um, I'm just one of many, and everything is here to stay. It's a nonprofit. 
We have gift shops that we get a percentage of money from, and we do fundraisers. So we're, we're a private foundation for the benefit of Teleco Plains and Monroe County. Well, we're certainly glad he did this. He did, and he was very smart to not put it in the family's Amen. name. <laughs> I'd be tempted to take one of those home with me. <laughs> and then Johnny was standing earlier by a gun that was given to Estes Kefauver. Gun right here, right? That's right. By Lyndon Johnson when he was on a hunting trip uh, with President Lyndon Johnson. Um, he was vice president at the time and when Kennedy was president and um, Vice President Johnson who later became president gave Kefauver for that gun and the um, a very nice Kefauver relative uh, donated that to daddy for the sake of the museum. So, it's a weapon. yeah, and we appreciate the people that uh, have honored the museum and continue to bring donations for uh, all generations to see. You know, I've noticed one thing that uh, your dad's collection is kind of eclectic. I know he, I see he has guns, he has the Native American artifacts, but he has many, many other uh, types of things. For instance, these uh, photographs, these early photographs. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about this stuff. Okay, well he he loved everything. You know, he had a, an appliance store in the 50s and sold the first TV we'll look at in a minute. Uh, before he had the telephone company and, and he was real interested in just history and he remembered his grandparents having some of these things, like a Victrola and having an Edison. And if we come around here and we look, you know, in the late 1800s was when Edison came, invented the phonograph, the first phonograph ever invented. Now, before then, in people's homes, the only music you heard was what they played. Live music. Live music. You never had anything like this. This is the first time people heard music in their homes. And that was invented in 1898. And this is one of the first ones, the home phonograph. And then it went to the standard phonograph, which we played earlier. And then about the time, you know, it started, that was, he first conceived this idea about 10 years later, but Edison got all into the light bulb and left it, and then he came back. And then about that time, people like Victor got involved, and that's the Victor talking machine right here. And it plays well, too. It's just harder for us to get to. And, uh, and so they had these big horns, and then Edison kept improving his cylinder records. He would make them harder, he would do the gold mounted, he'd do the amber all, they'd play for two minutes, and then he decided, I'm gonna do one that'll play for four minutes, and then it was some women would say, it's not loud enough. So over here, we have the Morning Glory horns. They're a wonderful collector's item and they would be much louder. And you see that's on a home phonograph, one of the first ones, and this one's on a standard. And we have some very unusual uh, Edisons that were the first, first ones in America. So we, we like to say we really focus on our great Teleco area, but we also have a lot of American history that's true all over America. And in 1930s, there were electric radios. Well, guess what we did here in Teleco? We had farm radios, and I'm going to show you one right here. And if, if we could see in the back, 
what it would do, it could run on a six volt battery like you would have in a tractor. So farmers would farm during the day and then they would bring their battery in and they had some kind of connector like you would have to charge up a battery in a car. And they would put that battery in because there wasn't electricity here until the 40s. And so, um, and they would listen to the radio. That's and, remarkable. And then they would put it on the tractor the next day and let it recharge and be sure and save a little bit. And in the 40s, that was really big because, you know, Roosevelt was president. Yes, was. And uh, he had the fireside chats. He had the fireside chats. Yep. And, you know, it was a radio was really popular. So people my father's age, and I'm sure your mother could probably yep. tell us um, about some of the uh, fireside chats oh, and I'm some sure. of the early radio. Um, so, and then, you know, radios kind of changed. They had the cathedral style and, you know, they were kind of piece, pieces of furniture and considered, um, you know, very special to be able, sometimes communities would gather at a certain place. Now, I had mentioned TV earlier and I wanted to show you this was the first tele television in, te in uh, Teleco Plains. Dad sold it, he had an appliance store in the early 50s. And um, he, what they would do at that time, of course we had passenger and freight trains. What you could do, you could call um, Knoxville or a place in Chattanooga and you could order what you wanted. You need to do it by 10 o'clock that morning and they would deliver it by train by four o'clock the next day. You know, so people would look at books and say what they wanted to order, and you know, there's his, um, yeah, his receipts. Machine yeah. For receipts. <laughs> well, welcome to Building Two. We have a lot of telephone artifacts here, and as you can see, we have a 1922 Ford Model T truck that was used by Bell South. You know, only one of two that is known in the whole world, the other one's overseas, and people love to come and see this thing. We have the tools that go with it. And Daddy used to get it out and drive it, but he's kind of trapped it that I can't get it out. <laughs> uh, but it's here for all people to enjoy, and we ha have the history of it on where all it was used. It was used in the southeast, including last in South Carolina. And what Bell South would do, in the Bell system, Southern Bell then, they would, Ford would make the chassis for them, and then they would have it custom built to, for their um, telephone truck. This was the last switchboard used in Teleco Plains when my dad bought the telephone company in 1954. And he knew that the Rural Electrification Act had extended from electricity to telephones, so he applied. There was 80 magneto stations, which means the crank phones, which we have many of them here, plus some. So he took out those phones, applied for a grant, converted to dial, built a central office, and had all new equipment, and um, kept the switchboard, thank heavens, that was, was working. And, and then that was when Teleco Plains went to dial, it was in October of 1956. I want to take the time to thank Pam Hall Matthews for taking her time to show us around this incredible museum that her father had left as a legacy to what he did for this area. So from all of us at Simply Monroe, 
Thank you very much. Thank you.